enabling people to become increasingly sedentary and continue to be even more productive over time is not going to translate to better health. So we have to differentiate between chronic disease management on the one hand and improving our health and well-being and ultimately our happiness on the other hand. What you can see, if you were to graph GDP over time against happiness over time in the U.S., and I point to this graph in the book, you can look it up, but our levels of happiness as a society have actually been declining since the 1970s or so. And again, the driving force behind that is the rise of chronic disease. So I think we're really kind of doing ourselves a disservice. In a way, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in the name of increasing productivity. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. So passionate, in fact, that I went through the trouble of creating a five-step guide to help you unleash your inner activist. If you're interested in receiving this guide, all you have to do is go to caremorebebetter.com and sign up for my newsletter. You'll get it as your welcome gift in moments. Today, we're going to talk about the connection between your financial freedom and your health, as I'm joined by a medical doctor, Bimal Thomas-George. Dr. George practices medicine at the Austin Diagnostic Clinic in Austin, Texas, where he lives with his wife and two children. He has a medical degree, a master's degree, and experience as the executive quality director of his clinic. He has a unique and broad understanding of population health, given his experience. He recently published a new book, Health in Flames, A Doctor's Prescription for Living Beyond Diet and Exercise. We'll hear from him how there's a better way to live a happier, healthier, wealthier, and more engaged and simply better life. But I'll let him tell you all about that. Dr. Vimal George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karina. It's a pleasure being here with you. Well, I'm just thrilled to have you. And I've spent a bit of time with your book thus far. I believe I've made it to chapter 11. I'm going to pull that up here. It looks like the title of that chapter is An Alternative Universe Revisited, Reimagining Life for Society. I'd been working to get through it before we had this call, but sometimes you run a little behind schedule. <laughs> you got so, pretty good way through it. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. So as we get started and we talk about this work, Having spent a fair amount of time with your book, I have to say that I'm curious, what led you, a medical doctor with a thriving practice and a fair amount of administrative responsibility to write a book about achieving better health through financial freedom? You know, you kind of nailed it. It's exactly that. A medical doctor and had some administrative responsibilities. And as the quality director at our clinic, I kind of saw from my vantage point what a lot of folks in the medical field are increasingly seeing, which is that chronic disease in America in particular, but even elsewhere, is increasing in much of the developed world over time. And 
it's not just chronic disease, but along with that comes higher healthcare costs year over year. And so today we're spending $3.8 trillion per year on our medical expenses as a country. Mm -hmm. And yet the rates of obesity, the rates of chronic disease are only increasing year after year. And so what that suggests is that we're just not containing the problem. For exactly for that reason, I've kind of wanted to approach this from a different perspective and kind of address what might be keeping people from following through on those fundamental pillars of healthy living that prevents chronic disease. And so what we know is that 80 to 90% of these chronic diseases are actually preventable and largely through a healthy diet and exercise and good sleep and managing stress. And yet what we're finding is that instead of preventing these chronic diseases, we're only just kind of managing it with increasingly sophisticated medications and technological solutions that are really not addressing the root cause. So in your opinion, what is that root cause? (laughs) So the root cause, which I talk about in the book, at some level, is very obvious, right? So at a superficial level, we all know that contrary to our forefathers who lived during the pre-industrial times, we're just not nearly as active and we're actually consuming a lot of processed foods. That wasn't necessarily the case in certainly pre-industrial times. And over time, this is becoming an increasingly difficult thing to for people to follow through on. And so what I come to the conclusion of in the book is that this really has to do with the intersection of two things. One is that just the fact that by human nature, we tend to mistake pleasure for happiness. Hmm. And the second is that in the system of capitalism that we have, this combination of our human nature with our economic system of capitalism leads to what I call mindless consumerism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Especially as we're recording this, Christmas is next week. And so I think parents in general, they think about these things and they're like, well, heck, this is like the consumerist time of year. In fact, I think the average household spends more than $400 on a single child's gifts. It's it's a little bit insane. So I think the expectation has even become that at Christmas, there's just a pile of toys underneath the tree. And then in addition to that, perhaps a new wardrobe and, and, and. Of course. You know, there's a statistic in the book that I mentioned that I think it's, we have about 3% of the world's children in the U.S. and yet we have about 40% of the toys. (laughs) So, so it just kind of speaks to the fact that we are vastly over consuming In a way that's not healthy. And the reason I say that is because, you know, um, and the reason for the term mindless consumption is that certain level of consumption is actually good for us. It's actually healthy and it actually improves our happiness and our health. Whereas beyond a certain level, it actually can adversely affect our health and decrease happiness. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what you're speaking about is something that we hear a lot about from minimalists. And there are a fair number of minimalism podcasts out there, including Mm -hmm. Sustainable Minimalism by Mm -hmm. Stephanie Safarian. I interviewed her shortly after I started this podcast and republished that episode 
in early December because I wanted people to think about minimalism as we headed into the holidays. The reality is that happiness seems to be adversely related to mm. the amount of stuff that people pack into their homes and that the clutter and everything else that comes with overconsumption can actually cause a fair amount of stress. You mentioned a statistic in the book too about the number of homes of people that now have storage facilities in addition to their spaces and the fact that our homes have doubled in size. So mm -hmm. not only since the 1970s have our homes doubled in size, mm -hmm. but we also are now running out storage lockers with increasing capacity because people just have more stuff than they have space for and they're reticent to let go of it. And so then they pay for storage and the storage fees pile up. Yeah. My mother paid for one for years and years after we left Oregon. And we ended up paying a friend to go and review it all and do a garage sale and keep the proceeds because it was just going to be a savings for us. I mean, we'd been spending a hundred or so dollars every month for years on what? A space to store stuff that we never missed. Yeah. You know, it's kind of mind boggling the degree of overconsumption that really is not translating to improvements in happiness, right? And so, you know, there's something I didn't mention in the book. There's a famous economist that I'm sure some of your listeners will know, John Maynard Keynes, who spoke in the 1930s. And he predicted that in our time, which is about 100 years from when he spoke this, that largely people would be financially independent meaning that they would have to work. And his prediction was that most people would work about 10 to 15 hours per week. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and obviously that's not the case. No. Well, so what happened? On the one hand, we have more women working now than ever before. And so you would think that we should have gotten to the point of becoming financially independent of our employers much sooner or working fewer hours much sooner. But that's not actually not the case. And so what's happened is that we've, as you mentioned, increased the size of our houses. So we have nearly almost three times the size of houses from the 1930s when John Maynard Keynes made this prediction. And we're vastly over-consuming. And so as a result, we're kind of tied to a modern way of employment, which is increasingly unhealthy. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to unpack that a little bit when as per when you want to go into that. Well, how about right now? Because <laughs> I mean, ultimately you're talking about, you make an argument in the book that if we work to achieve our financial independence sooner, if we're saving more, then we can get to the space where we can choose to work as opposed to being forced to, to just pay the bills and have more free time and have a higher quality of life. Yeah. Now, absolutely. I feel like I'm still stuck in the rat race because as I put it to people around me, it's like, if I have free time, I'll fill it with something because I like to work. Sure. And so in a way I turned my podcast into work because yeah. I really do love it. And I'm putting a message out into the world that I think people need to hear like this one, right? Like yeah. there's a different way of approaching your living that can give you more happiness and fulfillment yeah, so that, yes, please, let's talk about it. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. So first of all, is this recognition that beyond a certain level, the things that we buy have very little impact on happiness and actually can adversely affect happiness in ways that we don't realize, right? 
So if you buy into that notion, and there's actually a lot of science backing up this that I talk about in the book and happy to go into, or listeners can hopefully read the book and find out for themselves. But once you get to that point, then most of that spending is really not doing us any good, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's a better way to use that money, which is to invest that and over time, hopefully get to the point of becoming financially independent of their employer. And so what this opens up is a lot, right? So if you buy into this notion that really the best things in life, once you've met your basic needs, are largely free of cost, then that means that you can invest far more than the typical financial advisor typically recommends to put away, right? So most financial advisors tell you to put away 10%, maybe 20% if they're being really aggressive. But really, this opens up the possibility of putting away at least 30%, perhaps 70% of your income into investing. And what that does is that over time, and not really towards the end of your life, as what most financial advisors, we put away 10, 20%, then you'll be retiring toward the end of your life. But what this does is that enables you to become financially independent at a much younger age. Now, I absolutely love what you are doing because financial independence does not mean that you then sit back and retire and take back <laughs> and do nothing. I hope that people find the things that they're passionate about. And when they're passionate about something, they actually work differently. They work with meaning and purpose, and they actually work at a different level. And again, there's a lot of research behind that, which I kind of point to in the book. But what I'd like to suggest is that you get away, or at least you have the leverage to be able to decide on your own terms of employment. And so as a result, you get away from a sort of a hazardous way of living, which is what modern employment today looks like. So the typical person today in today's economy is sitting at a job from eight to five, largely tied to a computer, followed by sitting through traffic to and from work, And so that leaves one, you have almost no exercise there. It's completely sedentary. And two, oftentimes folks are rushed and they don't have time for an adequate breakfast. You know, it's usually breakfast on the go, maybe a breakfast taco or coffee. Lunch is often similarly rushed. And then to have time for an adequate nourishing meal that you prepare for dinner for you and your family, it just doesn't happen. People don't have the energy by the end of that time to be able to do all that. And so what I'd like to suggest is that really is a better way of living by recognizing that one, consumerism is part of that problem, is really what's the driving force behind this current status quo situation. So if I'm to summarize what I've read so far in the book, what I got from it is that through measures of frugality, Mm-hmm. And for being mindful of the things that you do consume along the way, that you can pay off your college debt earlier, that you can pay off your credit cards more succinctly, that by not buying the bigger, better, faster, more car every time that you've had one for just a couple of years and upgrading your home two or three times by the time you're 40, that you can essentially get to a space where you are more financially independent and your investments can start to even pay you a stipend if you're really smart about your resources. But I think that this can also feel really out of touch to people who might be a little bit more working class or who might have graduated from 
college with significant debt and not necessarily met the types of opportunities that would enable them to quickly pay it off. So I wondered if you could comment on that because ultimately I love the concepts and I'm a frugal person at heart, but I also would just like to better understand how we can guide people, especially if they're going to school for something at the commencement of their college that they hear is a burgeoning field and they're going to get in and it's going to be wide open. And then they graduate college four years later and the dynamics have shifted and there's COVID and, and, and. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're swamped in debt or something to that nature, Mm -hmm. you know, it really does set you back to, to some extent, but I do point to the story in the book that is actually modeled after a working class couple who was, I think there's, a young couple, relatively young, that started in their 20s and they were able to get to the point of actually becoming financially independent in their 30s, which is amazing considering they actually had five kids too. <laughs> so what I'd like to suggest is that this is much more plausible than a lot of folks think because we live in a society where everybody overconsumes, and as a result, what we think of as normal is probably inflated in terms of inflated level of normal. And that's not to say that there are some folks who just can't get to that level mm-hmm. and through no fault of their own, right? There's Circumstance, a lot of, medical issues, exactly, medical any issues, number of things that, you know, mm-hmm. some people just have very little income for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. There are some folks that will not get to that point of becoming financially independent. That's okay. Even if you don't get to that point, there's actually a lot of benefit to following in a mindful, consumer-oriented lifestyle that helps you sleep better at night, if nothing else. Maybe you have a little bit of cushion if maybe you don't have to work that second job. There is some degree of liberation even then just by being mindful of being a mindful consumer. I know that a lot of people can't even afford a $400 emergent expense without dipping Mm -hmm. into credit cards and things along those lines. So I think that's a reality for many people, but we are also, I think, living in a phase where, as you point out in the book, it's like this keeping up with the Joneses, this constant comparison that actually creates this illusion of not having enough or of not doing well enough because you're comparing to what someone else has, as opposed to thinking about what you have and what you can be thankful for. So I wondered if you had some perspective to offer on that in particular. And then I would also like to get into the types of investments that are perhaps, let's just say friendly for someone who's just getting started or thinking about investing less risky, but can also provide a better upside. Sure. I'll take that first part first. And so this keeping up with the Joneses phenomenon, it's a real deal, right? It is a very real thing that happens that we don't actually um, realize is happening. Later on in the book, it's past chapter 11, so I don't think you've gotten to it yet. But I tell (laughs) the story (laughs) of how when I was growing up in the villages of India, where I come from, actually in the entire village, no one had any utensils. (laughs) So we come to think of utensils as being essential, right? Well, you referenced earlier in the book, then chapter 11, at least, the fact that we think about these things as essential, but that in the Depression era, it wasn't that way. Like they weren't considered essential items, like you might not have them. Exactly, right. And Adam Smith actually had the foresight to recognize that increasingly over time, 
people would identify things as essential, which just a decade before was considered luxury. A smartphone. Yeah. Think well, about a decade ago. Definitely a smartphone. My point to the utensil, just because it's such a basic thing, right? I mean, if we can rethink the use of utensils, then we have to almost rethink everything. The, the point is that keeping up with the Joneses is not really what a lot of folks think is how it works. It's not necessarily neighbors competing against neighbors. Most folks, when their neighbor gets a nice car, they're relatively happy for them. They're not necessarily actively competing against them. But your social circumstances, your social cues, the people that you live around and, and are around, you almost kind of unknowingly get to a set of level of consumer-oriented purchases that you think are essential, that you think you might not be able to live without, when in fact, you really can rethink a lot of that. Now, all this is not to say that I think everybody should be living like a monk, okay? <laughs> so, so I don't think that that's a bad lifestyle for a lot of folks. It's probably better than the situation they find themselves in now. But I'd like to suggest is that you can get to the point of becoming financially independent. And that then opens up a lot of possibilities and opportunities like what Karina is doing. I mean, the sort of things that you want to be able to spend more of your time doing. And it opens up a lot of things that you can't do now. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's say, and maybe I'm asking for personal financial advice now. <laughs> You're not a financial analyst per se, but I'm looking at what I might even choose to invest mm -hmm. a little bit of money in. I have tended to put away the maximum contribution to my 401k over the years. This is something you mentioned in your book and the sort of things that employers can do to help their employees along, mm -hmm. like making it standard process that all paychecks are automatically deducted at 3% for a 401k that the company matches. And they'd have to choose to opt out as opposed to giving them the option to opt in. Mm -hmm. I love that. I sure. think that introduces financial responsibility a little sooner. But I've participated in all those programs as long as they were available. Yeah. And now that I'm self-employed, I'm a little bit more limited into what I can put away each year, at least how I put it away. Mm -hmm. So getting an IRA for $6,000, that's like tax-free, so to speak. And then looking at how else I might invest, I honestly haven't taken the time to educate myself and investigate what I might want to do. I've heard about mutual funds. I've been thinking about something that's more environmentally based. That's kind of in line with the constructs of my podcast, right? Like right. caring about social impact and sustainability. So mm -hmm. there are mutual funds that are specifically out there along those lines, which mm -hmm. seem to show a fairly consistent return. There is risk. There's, it's not like putting your money in a bank account per se, but right. I just love your input or your thoughts about where somebody should start. If they're just kind of yeah. figuring out that they have a few hundred dollars a month, to set aside how they should invest yeah. that to yeah, help secure that future? Yeah, great question. What I'd like to suggest is that if you've already adopted this mentality that once you've met your basic needs that the best things in life are then largely free of cost, that's almost 70% of it there, okay? Because once you've adopted that sort of mentality, you're going to be able to put away much more into an investment than, again, than what your typical financial advisor would recommend, right? Mm -hmm. So the key to growing your money over time is really simple. Basically, it comes down to live well within your means and then invest the rest. <laughs> okay. And so that's it. 
you could read hundreds of financial books and they'll tell you the same thing. Now, you know, as to how to do that, the easiest thing that I think most people would do well with are index funds, which are mutual funds that track the index, track the, for example, the S&P index tracks the top 500 companies or the S&P 500 index. And so it automatically adjusts to capture the top 500 companies and invest in those companies over time. That's probably the easiest way. It gives you a reliable return on your investment over time. And actually you beat out 90 to 95% of the professional money managers by investing in index funds. Mm -hmm. So for the vast majority of people, that's what would make the most sense. This is something that I think we should be talking more about. And I'm happy that they now have better financial resources and standard curriculums within high schools now than they did when I was going to high school, as a, for example. But if you think about the fact that there's a time value to money, like this is something we spent a bit of time learning about when I was getting my MBA at Santa Clara, right? And the fact is that you have inflation happening at a rate that's actually higher than a bank account, standard bank account, savings account yield would be. So even if you're squirreling money away and you're just putting it in an account, you're afraid to spend it. It's actually losing value with time. It's worth mm-hmm. less next year than it was the year prior. And so I think a wise choice would be to take at least a portion of whatever your savings you have and to put it into some sort of a mutual fund or an index fund. Mm-hmm. So that it has the potential to gain that 10% year over year that otherwise it wouldn't. And that 10% can be reinvested and reinvested and reinvested. And so that's what kind of gets you to the space that you're able to achieve that financial freedom. I have not followed this advice. I'm mm-hmm. terrible at it. I basically mm-hmm. have my 401k and my house and then the condo that we still have. But the reality is those things are all cushions and they mm-hmm. can become money, even if they're not money today. So I think we have a certain level of freedom, but I'm kind of just been afraid to make those investments. So if you were to give advice to somebody like me who might have a little bit of fear about investing, what might you say? Once you've fully funded your 401k or your IRA, and Mm -hmm. after that point, you should probably go to open an account at a discount brokerage firm and then just put away as much as you can, again, into mutual funds, into largely index funds. There's some fine tuning to do after that. You can get various types of index funds. So you want some large caps, some mid caps, some international. So different sorts of exposures on that in that way. But I don't want to make things too complicated. Just get started is what you're saying. Just get started. Go get a Vanguard 500 index fund and put some money in and watch that grow over time. That's real simple. And that right there is probably 90% of it. (laughs) Okay. So the rest is just kind of fine tuning. You can't go wrong if you started with that. Okay. Well, I have a few friends who are fairly wealthy and who went a little crazy over the Bitcoin explosion and made a fair amount of money in that space as well. And some of them are still, of course, diversified because they Mm -hmm. are smart about their resources But I wondered what your thoughts were about that particular arm of the investment wheel. Potentially, that's sort of risky. Um, I don't think (laughs) necessarily the best investment for most folks. You can lose a lot of money at the same time. For a lot of folks, they have made a lot of money in these last few years on Bitcoins, but that can change in a heartbeat. 
Mm-hmm. It's not likely to happen with index funds. Over the long term, the stock market grows consistently year over year at a pretty good clip. So, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I wonder if you had anything that you wanted to share that you felt like you hadn't gotten to yet. Yeah, I'd love to. If you think about the typical recommendation from our politicians, <laughs> the prevailing wisdom is that we should be spending more and we should be spending more so that we can grow GDP and increase productivity, right? And yet, why are we doing that? Ultimately, it's about human well-being, ultimately our happiness, right? And if we are adversely affecting our health by doing this, maybe we need to take a different approach. Maybe we need to do the exact opposite of what our politicians are suggesting. So once again, the prevailing wisdom is that by spending more, we're eventually going to get to the point of innovating. And these innovations are going to lead to technological breakthroughs that are going to be able to cure many of the chronic diseases that we can't even contain in today's world. Mm -hmm. So we'll have a cure for diabetes and cancer and Alzheimer's and things that we can't even imagine being able to contain in today's world, we'll be able to cure. So what's wrong with that line of reasoning? What I'd like to suggest is that just by enabling people to become increasingly sedentary and continue to be even more productive over time is not going to translate to better health. So we have to differentiate between chronic disease management on the one hand and improving our health and well-being and ultimately our happiness on the other hand. What you can see, if you were to graph GDP over time against happiness over time in the U.S., and I point to this graph in the book, you can look it up, but our levels of happiness as a society have actually been declining since the 1970s or so. And again, the driving force behind that is the rise of chronic disease. So I think we're really kind of doing ourselves a disservice. In a way, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in the name of increasing productivity. Well, you mentioned in the book, too, the action of people even just getting outside and experiencing a bike ride or going for a walk or eating whole foods as opposed to processed foods that they tend to report, they self-report as being happier and living happier lives. And as we increase our sedentary natures and we aren't connecting with one another in a face-to-face way and we aren't spending time outdoors and we aren't eating the right foods, all of those things actually impact our happiness and our ability to reach happiness. So I think you're spot on. Yes. And you said it perfectly, which is that really all those things that you named, getting outside, having access to wholesome food, exercising, moving around, all those things don't require any technological breakthroughs. They're actually available to us today. We just need to be free enough to be able to move from our desks. We just need to be able to have enough time for our day so that we can prepare an adequate nourishing meal. And so I'd like to suggest that for most folks, there's a much better way of living if we can wrap our heads around this concept that maybe this increasing productivity, this chasing after the latest and greatest is not so good for us. So I'm reminded of an interview I conducted a little bit ago with Mo Gaudat, who wrote Solve for Happy, and also who just recently wrote the book Scary Smart, and 
talked about our responsibility as it relates to artificial intelligence and the future it can help us create. So one of the things that came through in that discussion was this need to slow down and Mm -hmm. that that seemed to be a critical component of actually solving for happiness. And I'm personally seeing a movement of slow living and even a retail model branded as the slow retail model, which is all about essentially trying to distill down into core essentials focus on the things that are important, slow down, actually reduce the amount of work you try to do to really stay more focused on the idea space and remaining creative so that you can continue to actually produce meaningful work at a higher level. And so I think those things all kind of come into play, but I wondered if you had any thoughts to add to that. Just what you said really is that when you're tied to working for money, as most of us are, then you are working for a different reason than if you're financially independent. Mm -hmm. A person who's financially independent, they work because they're passionate about the product or service that they are producing. And money is a side effect. Whereas unfortunately for most of us, we work for money and the product or service is a side effect. And this has huge implications in terms of how we go about selling things and the kind of products that we produce. So it reminds me of what Upton Sinclair once said. He said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. (laughs) So in other words, uh, catch 22 of living. (laughs) So so we're much more likely to compromise our integrity. Mm -hmm. If we are tied to this form of living where we depend on our paycheck for our daily expenses, and yet we don't have to be this way, right? There's really a much better way out there that, again, I hope folks are listening out there will be persuaded about. And again, this has huge implications in terms of like the food industry. Just think about the way that we work in the food industries that They make things so addictive (laughs) because, again, it's about maximizing profit. And so the goal salt, sugar, put them both together and you have us. A little bit of fat, you can't, you know, sugar and fat, tempting Mm -hmm. a product as anything out there. And so it's just a way that when you're really passionate about the product or service as opposed to about profits, you're not necessarily trying to addict folks. You're not trying to lure them into getting more and more. And so it just changes the nature of how we work as a society. That's right. Wow. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation and I am just more and more convinced that I need to slow down a little bit further and also that I need to spend a little bit more time on investments because as I just criticized the habit of putting a bunch of money just in a bank account and letting it sit there, that's kind of what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've been looking at whether we'll take a portion of that and invest in my husband's employer, Joby Aviation, who just went public this summer. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at that. And I think I will just put some money aside in some basic indexed funds because it's not very risky and mm-hmm. it will help secure a future and possibly even pay for that education for my kids. Because that's the one thing that I think is tough right now. Mm-hmm. Saving for their education is the thing that I'm pretty much got my sights on at this point. There are some excellent 529 
plans, which are college yep. savings plans out there that everybody should be hopefully looking into as well that mm -hmm. can get you to that level of security that you need. So, yeah, my mother-in-law put it this way though, save for yourself and retirement first and then the children, because if you can't cover your own expenses later in life, then they're just expected to cover yours. So I think she's right. <laughs> it's, if you kick the can down the road to them, is that really fair too? So I think it was an interesting point. Yeah. So I get to this last bit of our interview. I like to ask my guests if there was a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had. And if not, then well, let's just sum up and give our listeners that one thing that they should walk into their days thinking about. Hmm. Yeah, I hope to convey, and again, I want to refer you to the book to read a little bit about the science of happiness, right? We didn't talk a whole lot about that, but there are actually relatively few things that impact happiness, uh, surprisingly few things that are within our control. And so those things are largely, once you've met your basic needs, are, are largely free of cost. And so those things tend to be things that engage your body or mind or our soul in some way, right? So exercise, for example, engages your body or reading a book, right? Those are things that engage the mind and make you think about things, listening to podcasts, <laughs> so, things like that. Those things which are, again, largely free of cost that are available to us, spending time with family and friends. I hope that when we start to recognize the huge opportunities that we're potentially missing out on in the name of increasing productivity, mm -hmm. that we as a society start to rethink things to hopefully live in, in a healthier way, in a better way. Well, true that. I can't agree more. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. George, for taking this time with us today. Can I just add in one last bit? Absolutely. So if anybody is interested, once again, the book is called Health in Flames, a doctor's prescription for living beyond diet and exercise. You can find out more information on the website, healthinflames.com. I hope you guys read the book and I, I'm convinced that it will benefit you. And for those of you who are interested in getting to that, bringing that benefit to the next level, to societal level, there's a place on the website where you can contact me and indicate your interest. And I hope to work with some of y'all to build a better society. So look forward to that. Well, one more thing I'll say about the book, because I've been enjoying it in audiobook format. Yeah. At the end of each section, you kind of offer a question and answer. So you're inviting people to reflect on the information that they've just learned. And I think that's a really good format for working to ingrain the learnings and try to move forward and into change. So thanks for doing that. I think it's an incredible book. I also like reading audiobooks as I'm out there enjoying mm -hmm. the outdoors. I'm kind of an audiophile. So I'll just put a reminder there for all of you. You can get it in audio format as well. Thank you so much, Karina. Thank you, Dr. George. Now, listeners, if you have learned anything today, I would like to just sum it up really quick for you. The reality is that each of us has a responsibility for the things that we consume and the things that we dispose of. If we're more mindful of the things that we consume, then guess what? We have less to dispose of too. And that can be part of the solution that will work to reverse global warming and ultimately make a more habitable and happy future for all of us. So I would invite all of you to go ahead and pick up a copy of his book. It's a really a great read. It's 
awesome as an audiobook too. And one of the things I sometimes do to save time is speed it up to one and a half times. I think that's part of how I got through almost the end of chapter 11 before today's interview, having only met Dr. George about a week and a half ago and while doing this podcast and working and raising two boys. So there are ways to fit these things in. And I just think it's an exceptional way to take care of it. Now, you understand that living a little bit more frugally, just by doing that, you can be happier, you can be healthier, you can live with greater purpose, you can have a little bit more security, you can understand that you've got more money building in the background as you continue on your day. This is one of the many ways that we will work to rebuild. Now, this particular topic and episode is something that I think everyone would benefit from. So I have a special ask for you today. When you're with your friends and family, tell them about Dr. George's work. Subscribe them to this podcast. You could even load the episode up on their phone and get them to listen to it. This isn't a Mount Everest ask. It's a practical one. Too often, we intend to do something, to get something done, and we forget. It fades into the background of the shoulds as we go on with our busy lives. And so really, I think that would be a fantastic way for you to pay it forward. Okay, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. (laughs) But seriously, you are what makes all of this work with this podcast worth it every single day. I'd really love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this particular episode, if you read Dr. Vimal George's work, if you have questions for him, I'd be happy to put you in touch as well. Reach out. You can even leave me a voicemail on caremorebebetter.com or just send me an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.